This podcast is the second in a series on the Mr. Cruel Crimes. It assumes you have listened to the previous episode. If you have not, I would recommend you go back and listen to episode 1 before listening to this episode. In researching for this series of podcasts on the Mr. Cruel Crimes, one thing that has struck me is the amount of information out there in articles and books that have been written about the case, which contradicts other information. There are many examples of this, but to pick one example at random, the victim in the Lower Plenty attack is variously described as being 11 or 12 years old. It may seem a minor detail, but there are many of these inconsistencies. Therefore, in retelling the facts of this case, I have potentially been presented with the problem of choosing the reliability of one source over another. Should we trust the contemporary newspaper articles of the time, or the most recent in-depth analysis of the Mr. Cruel case, Keith Moore's 2016 article titled Victoria Police and FBI Dossier on Shocking Child Abductions, perhaps the most comprehensive source of information on the case out there. When the information is contradictory, it is impossible to know which source to consider more reliable. If you rely purely on the contemporary sources, one runs the risk of relying on information which was later realised to be mistaken. On the other hand, if you rely solely on the most recent source, as most articles, blogs and podcasts about this case have in recent years, you run the risk of relying on a source which has gained some of its information from interviews with detectives and other experts 30 years after the events in question. Memories are fallible, and I have come across instances of incongruities in recent publications, which have relied on the memories of experts who have perhaps misremembered some details from 30 years ago. I will highlight some of these incongruities later in this podcast. When these contradictions come to the fore, and not knowing which is the objective truth, I have decided simply to present the information in a way that reports what other journalists have written about the case and bring it to the attention of the reader when there are contradictions. Perhaps by getting all of this information out there, there is a small possibility it might contribute to clearing up some of the confusion about the finer details of the case. I realise this style of podcast may not be for everybody. If it is pure storytelling you are looking for, there are a number of blogs and podcasts out there that cover this case. They all tell the story as if they were there, a fly on the wall, as if they know exactly what happened. They almost exclusively rely on paraphrasing Keith Moore's 2016 article mentioned previously, which is a well-written article, but contains information that contradicts some of the details that were presented in newspaper articles in 1987 and 1988 in some key respects. I have spent many months attempting to read everything that has been written on this case. As a result, I have made numerous visits to libraries where I have found many newspaper articles on the subject which nobody else has made available before on the internet. I am confident I have now read the vast majority there is to read about this case that is in the public forum. This podcast is a collation and presentation of all that I found in these sources and it is largely presented in chronological order. In the first episode, I mentioned the four canonical attacks that are considered by most detectives to be the work of Mr. Cruel. Today I will focus on the first of these that was reported in the media as the lower plenty rape of a girl in her home on the 22nd of August 1987. A particularly violent rape. 
As far as I have found, the very first time anything was ever written about this case was on the 29th of August, 1987, when articles were published in both The Age and The Sun News Pictorial. We can probably safely assume, therefore, that there was a police press conference the day before, on the 28th of August. Both articles were published exactly one week after the actual attack occurred on the 22nd of August. The Age article was written by Greg Birchall under the title Police Warned That Armed Rapist Might Strike Again. It reported that a 12-year-old girl, take note of her age as this will be different in later articles, was raped after a man broke into her, quote, Eastern Suburbs house and bound and gagged her parents and that police were worried that he could strike again. Detective Inspector Val Simpson of the Greensboro CIB was paraphrased as stating that the attack was similar to the three rapes which occurred in December of 1985 in the, quote, Donvale Bulleen area. I will discuss these cases in the next episode. He went on to say that the family of the raped girl did not want any details of the attack released, but had agreed to do so when told of the, quote, danger of their attacker repeating his crime. Detective Sergeant Simpson said the attacker was armed with a, quote, small automatic handgun and a large knife. He broke a window at the front of the property before heading straight for the parents' bedroom, where he, quote, bound and gagged a couple in their 30s and their six-year-old son. Take note here, the article says the son was, quote, six years old, and that he was bound and gagged in his parents' bedroom, which contradicts information we hear later. The attacker then took the 12-year-old girl to the lounge room, where she suffered a, quote, particularly violent rape. The detective went on to describe how the attacker stole, quote, $250 cash and a few articles of clothing. He was described as, quote, an Australian in his 30s, about 175 centimetres tall, with brown hair and slim build. Take note of this first ever description of this man too, as it will be different to future reports of this offence. Quote, He was wearing a balaclava, blue jeans and a brown tweed sports coat over a blue zip-up jacket and was carrying a grey cloth bag. A black and white photograph of an artist's rendition of the attacker is also provided which is clearly the same illustration as the colourised version I've included at the top of the blog post. Only this one is cut off at the man's belly. What is noticeable about this image is the balaclava is open from the upper lip to his hairline. A tuft of hair protrudes from under the top of the balaclava, and there is material stretching across his eyes, which seems to act as some kind of visor that hides his eyes. Nevertheless, this remains the best image we have of Mr. Krull, as in all the later canonical attacks, his entire face is covered by the balaclava. A very dangerous sort of person. The Sun also reported on this crime in an article by Greg Tom on the same day, titled Family Tied Up as Girl 12 Raped, which goes into a little bit more detail than the Age article. Included a photograph by Janine Eastgate of Detective Sergeant Val Simpson holding three different rolls of red, blue and green tape and two different types of rope or cord. Behind Detective Simpson we can see two illustrations, one of an artist's depiction of the perpetrator and one of the gun and knife used in the attack. The article stated that police were looking for a man who had raped a 12-year-old girl in the quote, Eltham Lower Plenty area 
after tying up her parents and brother in the, quote, bedroom of their outer suburban house. He was armed with a, quote, small handgun and large hunting knife. Police had expressed concern that the man might strike again and that the offences were similar to attacks that had occurred in December 1985. The offender had handcuffed the girl's parents and bound their hands and legs before gagging them and putting, quote, surgical tape over their eyes. He had then taken the girl and her six-year-old brother into the parents' bedroom, where he bound and gagged the boy before taking the girl to another room and raping her. Police said the man had tricked the parents into thinking he was only there to rob the house. He had stolen $250 from a wallet and purse. Detective Sergeant Val Simpson was quoted as saying, quote, Obviously the trauma of rape has been a very nasty experience for the young girl. Anyone who breaks into a home in the middle of the night subjects a family to this sort of terrorism and rapes a 12-year-old girl is obviously a very dangerous sort of person. He also said, quote, He is struck once and there is every possibility he could strike again. Tom wrote that police had stated that the perpetrator was, quote, aged in his 30s, between 173 centimetres and 175 centimetres, probably Australian, with brown hair, slim build, and wearing a dark blue balaclava, but also mentioned how he was wearing, quote, blue runners with a white trim. Also, the article stated that the grey cloth bag he was carrying was, quote, similar to the type used by children to carry library books. The Sun article also included the full-length artist's depiction of the attacker. May have committed five similar attacks. The next newspaper publication of this attack was on the 1st of September 1987, when the weekly Diamond Valley News published an article titled Task Force to Hunt Rapist by Sally MacDonald with a photograph similar to the one that appeared in the sun, depicting Detective Sergeant Val Simpson holding up the tape and rope and the full-length artist's illustration of the suspect. The article stated that police believed that the man who had raped the 12-year-old girl may have committed five similar attacks. It stated the girl had been raped after her family had been bound, gagged and locked in another room. Detective Sergeant Val Simpson, it stated, had been appointed to head a task force to, quote, solve this attack. McDonald wrote that Detective Sergeant Simpson had speculated that the perpetrator may have been responsible for three similar incidents that had occurred in Warrandyte, Bulleen and Donvale in December 1985, and two attempted rapes that had occurred in Greensboro in March and August 1987. Detective Sergeant Simpson was quoted as saying of these attacks, in the 1985 incidents, he entered the homes of women in similar circumstances, and the offence of rape was committed. McDonald noted that police were, quote, keeping an open mind as to whether the same offender was responsible for two recent attempted rapes in the Joyce Avenue, Greensboro area. In the Greensboro attempted rapes, the offender had, quote, forced entry into houses at around 4am early on Saturday mornings and attempted to rape the female occupant of each house. The article went on to describe the Lower Plenty attack in the same ways as it had been described in The Sun and The Age on the 29th of August. But Detective Senior Sergeant Val Simpson was also quoted as stating, quote, We have no idea at this stage how he selected the house. That's something we're working on at this stage. At this stage, there is nothing to indicate that he knew the family, 
This is just a normal everyday family with no special interests or anything that might bring them into conflict with other people. It's almost as if their whole being has been shattered by this one incident. McDonald then also paraphrased Detective Sergeant Simpson as stating that the offender, quote, could be a local resident and that there was, quote, no indication that he was on drugs or drink. The article then went on to describe the physical description of the perpetrator in the same way as was in the Sun. Appealing for help. The next article about the Lower Plenty attack appeared in The Age on 4th of September 1987, when a short was written stating that police were, quote, appealing for help to help catch the perpetrator under the title Police Appeal. Surprisingly, this short described the attack as occurring in Eltham, which must have been a mistake, as while the exact address has never been publicised, it has mostly been reported as having occurred in Lower Plenty or the Lower Plenty Eltham area, which seems to suggest the part of Lower Plenty which is near the border with Eltham. There is every possibility he could strike again. The same day, a more detailed article was published in The Sun by Bruce Tobin, under the title, Rapists threatened the second family, police. The article described how the perpetrator had gained access to the house in, quote, Lower Plenty Eltham, after he, quote, smashed a window. However, it described how, before he raped the girl, he had made a threatening phone call to another family, quote, from the main bedroom of the house and threatened them with physical violence. Detective Sergeant Val Simpson was paraphrased saying the perpetrator told the second family to, quote, move their children or they would be in danger, and, quote, there is every possibility he could strike again. He also suggested that the same man could have been responsible for three rapes that occurred in the eastern suburbs in December 1985. The man had called the second family between 4.30 and 5am and referred to the person on the other end as Bozo. Detective Sergeant Simpson, quote, appealed to the people who received the call to contact police. The article then went on to describe the circumstances of the attack in the same way as had been in the previous Sun article, except it said the man was about 175 centimetres tall. The call was made to a person named Bozo. Then on the 8th of September, another article by Sally MacDonnell appeared in the Diamond Valley News titled, Phone Threat Clue to Rapist. In the article, McDonald stated that the police believed that the perpetrator had, quote, made a threatening phone call from the house during the two-hour ordeal. Detective Sergeant Val Simpson was quoted as stating that, quote, when the offender was in the house, it would appear that a threatening phone call could have been made between 4.30 and 5 a.m. The call was made to a person named Bozo or a similar sounding name. Threatening remarks were made to this person and it was suggested that he remove his children from the house. We are treating it as a genuine call. The article stated that the police were looking for anyone who had received a threatening phone call at about 4.30am on the 22nd of August to contact them. Super cool and super cruel. The Lower Plenty attack was in the news again on the 19th of November 1987 when an article by Jim Tennyson appeared in The Sun linking the Lower Plenty attack to an attack on a 48-year-old woman that had occurred on the night morning of the 10th to 11th of November under the heading Police Hunt for Mr. Cruel. This was the first usage of the term Mr. Cruel by the media. 
Tennyson's article detailed the fact that a police task force had been set up to help find the perpetrator, who was described by police as, quote, Super cool and super cruel. Assistant Commissioner of Crime, Mr. Vaughan Werner, was quoted as saying, quote, We have put a very high priority on the hunt for this man. He is a cold-blooded, calculating character who has caused incredible trauma to his victims. Tennyson paraphrases Senior Detective Sergeant Jerry Tatter, who was the head of the task force, as saying, quote, He believed the man had committed at least three rapes, and possibly several more over a period of at least two years. Senior Sergeant Tatter then went on to describe how he believed the same man had committed the Lower Plenty attack, and then gave a brief summary of that attack. What was notable about this is that the girl is this time described as an 11-year-old rather than a 12-year-old. Another incongruity was that Tennyson stated in his article that the girl's brother was seven years old. Lastly, he stated that the brother was locked in the wardrobe along with his parents, and this account would be repeated in articles about this case in future years. Tennyson then went on to describe the attack on the 48-year-old woman, in which the perpetrator broke into her home and, quote, threatened her with a knife, bound and gagged her, and then raped her. The man then stole her bank card and went to a bank in Mooney Ponds, where he withdrew $300 from her bank account. He had then returned to the woman's house and, quote, sexually assaulted her again before leaving in the early hours of last Wednesday morning. Tatter was then paraphrased as describing the Lower Plenty attack as a, quote, virtual blueprint of an attack on, quote, a 35-year-old woman in her home in Donvale on the 6th of December 1985. The article stated that in that attack, the man had been armed with a, quote, long-barreled handgun, and that, quote, in all three cases, the rapist has worn a balaclava or hood and blindfolded, bound, and gagged his victims before assaulting them and stealing money. Tennyson's article gave a slightly different physical description of the perpetrator, about 179 centimetres tall, aged 25 to 35, and of a slim build. Park Street or Clarinda Road On the 25th of November 1987, an article by Nadine Hartnett featuring information about the Lower Plenty attack was published by the Essendon Gazette. This was largely about the attack on the 48-year-old Mooney Ponds victim, but also mentioned the Donvale attack in 1985 and included new information. Regarding the Mooney Ponds attack, it stated a man had broken into the victim's home at, quote, 10 p.m. before describing the attack in the same way as was in Jim Tennyson's article. However, more information was given on the location and the description of the attacker. He was described as, quote, a slim man wearing pale blue jeans, end quote, could have been seen near Park Street or Clarinda Road between 9.30 and 10 p.m. on November 10th or at the Commonwealth Bank in Puckles Street near Pratt Street between 1 and 1.30 a.m. the next morning. Hartner then paraphrased Senior Sergeant Jerry Tatter as describing the Lower Plenty victim as 11 and her brother as 7, repeating the claim that the brother was locked in the wardrobe with his parents. Again, this contradicts other articles and may have simply been a mistake by the officer at the press conference. The Donvale attack was then also described in the same way as had been in Tennyson's article. Red and white and plain white nylon clothesline cord and blue, green, and red PVC electrical tape. On 15th of November 1987, a Crime Stoppers report was published in The Age about the Lower Plenty attack, 
It described the victim as 11 years old, and it stated the perpetrator gained entry to the house when he, quote, smashed a window. It said he, quote, made several phone calls to speak about a person called Bozo. It stated, quote, he carried a grey satchel and red and white and plain white nylon clothesline cord and blue, green and red PVC electrical tape. A cold-blooded calculating character who has caused incredible trauma to his victims. Then on the 10th of May 1988, Ines Willicks for The Age wrote an article about the case titled Police ask public for help tracking rapists linked to 20 attacks. This article stated that Detective Inspector Ken McKenzie had tentatively linked the rapist involved in the Lower Plenty attack to at least 20 other attacks in the northern and eastern suburbs. Willicks paraphrased the police in general as describing him as, quote, The most audacious sex attacker they have investigated. Detective Inspector McKenzie was quoted as saying, It puts him into the Mr. Stinky category, and he poses no less a threat as Mr. Stinky did in his heyday. The article then added a note that, quote, Raymond Edwards, known as Mr. Stinky, was convicted in 1985 of five rapes. The detective inspector said that a task force had been set up the previous November after the attack on the 48-year-old woman in Mooney Ponds, and that, quote, They are certain he has committed three attacks since December 1985. A 35-year-old woman in December 1985, the lower plenty rape of an 11-year-old girl and the Mooney Ponds, quote, assault of a 48-year-old woman in November the previous year. The article went on to describe how during the lower plenty attack, the rapist had stolen, quote, a box of rare classical records. The records were by the London Philharmonic Orchestra in a set called, quote, classic gold written in gold print on a black box. Detective Inspector McKenzie went on to ask for help from anyone in the public who might have acquired a set such as this since August 1987. Willicks wrote that during the Lower Plenty attack, the man was armed with a, quote, pistol, and that, quote, he even made himself a meal. He picked the glass from the broken window and stole a dark blue parka with the label Ecuadorian Shirt Company. This article described the man as between 168 and 183 centimetres tall, a much wider range given than in previous articles about this attacker. Cool and calculating, a man who meticulously plans his attacks. Ines Willicks then released another article for The Age two days later, on the 12th of May 1988, under the title, Police Seek a New Mr. Stinky Rapist. The article begins by suggesting police were searching for a new rapist in the vein of Mr. Stinky, who it was stated was, quote, now serving life for murder. It paraphrases police as describing the new rapist as, quote, cool and calculating, a man who meticulously plans his attacks. And he also mentions again how the perpetrator had been linked with at least three rapes and up to 20 attacks. Willicks also wrote, quote, they know of but refuse to discuss several disturbing similarities about the attacks because they fear others could copy his methods. Willicks went on to describe how the police did not know much about the attacker because he always wore a balaclava. It is mentioned how he stole small amounts of money from all his victims. Chief Commissioner Kel Glare is cited as using this attacker as an example of why police needed more resources to tackle crime. 
A quote from Assistant Commissioner of Crime, Vaughan Werner, from the article dated 10th of May, describing the attacker as, quote, a cold-blooded, calculating character who has caused incredible trauma to his victims, is repeated. Willicks described the 6th of December 1985 Donvale attack in a unique way with new information. He waited in a house for a 30-year-old woman, he had described her as aged 35 in his own article just two days previously, and her 17-year-old sister. When the women arrived home at 10.30pm, the older woman was confronted by a man in the lounge in the back of the house. He had broken in through the back door. Armed with a long-barreled pistol, the man took the woman to a bedroom where he had heard the younger woman talking. Using pantyhose, he tied the girl up and locked her in a bedroom wardrobe, securing the door handles. The man then took the older woman to another bedroom, tied her up and raped her. Police said that during the attack he called to her sister in the bedroom to check on her. The rapist spent about 90 minutes in the house after the attack. He stole a small amount of money and ripped the telephone from the wall. Willicks then described the Lower Plenty attack with some new information, saying, quote, A family home surrounded by bushland in a quiet street. Also, quote, He went first to the master bedroom, where he tied up the parents of an 11-year-old girl and forced them into a wardrobe. Again, the doors were secured, this time with a shoe rack. It is stated that he tied the seven-year-old brother to the bed in the parents' bedroom before the girl was taken to the lounge room and assaulted. Willicks also paraphrased the police as reporting that, quote, The man spent two hours in the house, making a meal in the kitchen and making several phone calls. Willicks reported, quote, Before he left, probably through the front door, he picked up the broken glass on the lounge floor, ripped a telephone from the wall and stole a box of classical records, a coat and some money. Police are especially interested in the coat made by the Ecuadorian Shirt Company. It was bought in South America and may be the only one in Australia. Note, a Google search for this company brings up nothing, but there is a company called the Ecuadorian Clothing Company. It is unknown if this is the same company being referred to here. Willicks then went on to describe the attack on the 48-year-old woman in Mooney Ponds on, quote, The 10th of November, 1988. The man broke into the house at 9.20pm. Notice this is different from the time of 10pm given in Nadine Hartnett's article in the Essendon Gazette. And used a knife to threaten the 48-year-old woman who lived alone. She was sleeping when she was attacked. The rapist did not turn on the lights. He tied her up with a nylon cord which is not available in Australia and then raped her. He emptied her handbag and took her automatic teller machine card. Police are certain he planned the attack because he walked almost a kilometre to a bank with an automatic withdrawal machine. He withdrew $300 from the woman's account and walked back to the house. He was away about 45 minutes. During that time, the woman freed herself of her gag and called for help. When the man returned, he admonished the woman and raped her again before ripping out the telephone and leaving. The woman's ordeal lasted more than four hours. Willicks then repeated the physical description of the man that he had written in the 10th of May article, describing him as between 25 and 35, 168 to 183 centimetres tall, and of slim build. The article included the same police artist's rendition of the perpetrator as was published in earlier articles about the Lower Plenty attack, and a photograph of Chief Commissioner Kel Glare. A vicious kidnapper known as Mr. Cruel. 
When Sharon Wills was abducted from her Ringwood home in December 1988, press reports did not link it to the Lower Plenty attack. It was not until the abduction of Nicola Linus in July 1990 that the three cases were linked in the media. This occurred when Brian Walsh, Andrew Meveson and Mary Viskovich wrote an article for The Sun titled Alert on Mr. Cruel. It was published on the 6th of July 1990 after Nicola Linus had been released by the kidnapper. The article went to press before it was realised Nicola Linus had been found alive, so it was written as if she was still missing, even though she was discovered earlier that morning. In linking the Nicola Linus abduction to the Lower Plenty attack in 1987, the moniker Mr. Cruel was resurrected. It had not been used in the media since Jim Tennyson's article in November of 1987. The police had linked the Nicola Linus abduction with the Sharon Wills abduction as soon as the former kidnapping occurred over two days previously, but now they were linking the Lower Plenty case as well. It pointed out that in both the Lower Plenty attack and Nicola Linus's abduction, the offender was wearing a balaclava and armed with a long knife and a handgun. This article described the Lower Plenty victim as 11 years old. Same offender, responsible for rape of a girl 11 in her Lower Plenty home. The Age published their own article the same day titled Letter Imprint Clue to Missing Girl by Paul Conroy, Jackie MacDonald and Peter Schwab. While the crux of the article was about a clue that might have been left by the abductor of Nicola Linus, I will not go into those details now as I will save that discussion for a future in-depth post I do on the Nicola Linus abduction. Notably, the Age article did not refer to the perpetrator as Mr. Cruel, choosing to ignore the moniker used previously by The Sun. However, it did link the same man who abducted Nicola with the man who had abducted Sharon and the perpetrator who had committed the Lower Plenty attack, describing the victim in the latter as 11 years old. Mr. Cruel, who was responsible for the rape of a 12-year-old girl. The same day, the 6th of July 1990, Louise Talbot and Philip Hudson published an article in The Herald, an evening newspaper, titled Dangerous Fantasy, the Key to Kidnap, Say Police. It also stated that police had linked Nicola Linus's abduction to the Sharon Wheels abduction and the Lower Plenty attack, describing the Lower Plenty victim as 12 years old and her brother as 6 years old, a combination of ages that had not been used before in previous articles. It also stated, quote, This man may also be responsible for attacks in December 1985, which obviously refers to the Donvale Warrandate bullying sexual assaults mentioned previously. Having resurrected the Mr. Cruel moniker and associated it with the abductions of Sharon Wills and Nicola Linus, both of which had far more media coverage than the Lower Plenty attack, the name struck a chord and was used from then on by television, radio and the press in reference to this case. Factual Errors When Carmen Chan was abducted on the 13th of April 1991, the Herald Sun newspaper, a merger of the evening broadsheet The Herald and the morning tabloid The Sun News Pictorial, published an article by an unnamed author on the 15th of April describing the abduction as the work of Mr. Cruel, the same man who had abducted Sharon Wills and Nicola Linus, but did not mention the Lower Plenty attack. The article published false information that all three girls were abducted on school holidays. Nicola Linus was abducted during the final week of term, not on school holidays and this was made clear in a number of the newspaper articles that were published about her abduction in July 1990. I will come back to this topic in the future in-depth post about Nicola Linus. The article also falsely asserted that the moniker Mr. Cruel was one which was given to him by detectives. 
Rather, he was dubbed Mr. Cruel in the previously mentioned article by Jim Tennyson, published by The Sun on the 19th of November, 1987. There was no mention of the Lower Plenty attack in this article, but it was linked in an article in The Age on the 16th of April titled Police Put Together Profile of Kidnapper by Bruce Tobin and Jackie MacDonald. The Lower Plenty attack did not occur on school holidays. Thank you to the researcher Penguin for pointing this out to me. Over the course of the last 30 years, numerous newspaper articles, books, and even the FBI profiling report have erroneously stated that all four of the canonical Mr. Cruel attacks occurred on school holidays. This is incorrect. In fact, neither the Lower Plenty attack nor the Nicola Linus abduction occurred during school holidays. The latter occurred in the final week of term and the former in mid-term three. Yet, this mistake is repeated by respectable mainstream media organizations en masse. There is a perfectly good explanation as to how this mistake was originally made. When the school terms for 1990 were first decided upon in 1989, they originally had Term 2 as finishing on the 29th of June and Term 3 beginning on the 16th of July. However, this was later amended and Term 2 actually finished on the 6th of July. Since Nicola Linus was abducted on Tuesday the 3rd of July, this was in fact the last week of term. This can be proved by simply looking at the newspaper articles from the period that clearly illustrate that Nicola was to finish school on the Friday the 6th of July before she and her family had planned to return to England the following day. The FBI Profile of Mr. Krull On the 24th of April 1991, Having received a request from Victoria Police to create a profile of the unknown offender, the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia, wrote a letter to the Victoria Police based on information the latter had provided to them about the four canonical attacks. At this stage, Victoria Police was under the mistaken belief that all four attacks had occurred during school holidays, so the FBI provided their profile based on this false information. Of note in this document, relevant to any discussion about the Lower Plenty attack, is that the FBI stated, quote, We believe the offender may reside in the vicinity of the first assault, meaning the Lower Plenty attack. This is further strengthened by the fact that the offender has returned to that same general area in the fourth assault. In cases of serial sexual assault, this type of clustering indicates an area of great significance to the offender. Usually it indicates that the offender lives there, while in other cases it reflects his employment. In this case, we believe that it is more probable that the offender resides in that area. In view of the fact that these incidents all occur during school holidays, coupled with the offender's use of a school uniform in the third assault, we suggest there is a high degree of probability that the offender is involved with a school. He may be employed there or connected with a school in some other capacity. The FBI profile continues in this vein, and I will delve into it in more depth in a future post. What is startling here, however, is the fact that the Victoria Police relied upon this profile, which the FBI constructed based on false information. This is not to mention that the entire subject of the FBI method of profiling is an extremely controversial one and is considered to be a pseudoscience by many, with no peer-reviewed studies proving that it works. However, I will come back to the topic of the FBI method of profiling in a later post. Mr. Cool? 
In a long article for The Age titled Brutal Abductor Breeds Fear with Cruelty, published three weeks after Carmen Chan's abduction, Anthony Catalano referred to the lower plenty attack. He gave the victim's age as 11 and her brother's as 7. He stated that the brother was tied up and locked in the wardrobe with his parents. Confusingly, he also claimed that a police task force set up after the Mooney Ponds attack dismissed it as not the work of Mr. Cruel. This is strange indeed, as, as recently as 2019, Xanthine Mallet, in the chapter of her book, Cold Case Investigations, that dealt with Mr. Cruel, was asserting that the Mooney Pond attack was the work of Mr. Cruel. We will come back to this seeming contradiction later in the podcast. Catalano also gave a bizarre origin story for the term Mr. Cruel, claiming that it was coined when police initially thought the identity of the attacker of the 48-year-old victim and the lower plenty victim were one and the same. They had, he claimed, called the perpetrator in the lower plenty case, quote, Mr. Cool. So when Chief Police Commissioner for Crime, Mr. Vaughan Werner, described that perpetrator in the Mooney Ponds case as, quote, Cruel, the name, quote, Mr. Cruel, appeared as the headline the next day in the Sun article by Jim Tennyson. The problem with this claim is that there is no evidence it is true. While the perpetrator in the Lower Plenty attack case had been described as, quote, cool and calculating, nowhere have I found evidence that he was referred to as, quote, Mr. Cool. Furthermore, the fact that Catalano refers to the linking of the Mooney Ponds rape with the Lower Plenty rape as a mix-up, when some experts have more recently asserted that the two crimes were linked, makes this article even more confusing. A lack of mentions of the Lower Plenty attack. Operation Spectrum was the police task force set up to investigate the abduction of Carmen Chan. I will cover Operation Spectrum in more depth in a later post. Throughout the duration of this task force, from 1991 to 1994, the detectives on it asserted to the media that the abductor of Carmen Chan was probably the same person who had abducted both Nicola Linus and Sharon Wills, and who had raped the girl in Lower Plenty. Despite this, a series of books were published in the following two decades, which covered the Mr. Cruel case, which hardly mentioned the Lower Plenty attack. For example, Paul Anderson's chapter on Mr. Cruel from his 2003 book Dirty Dozen, Shocking Australian Crew Crime Stories, only included one sentence about the Lower Plenty attack. Larry Reiter's chapter on the Mr. Cruel case in his 2008 book, The Australian Book of True Crime, does not mention it at all. Colin McLaren, who was a detective on Operation Spectrum, included a chapter on the Mr. Cruel case in his 2011 book, Infiltration, but he also completely neglects to cover the Lower Plenty case. There are also a number of factual errors in the chapter, such as when he claims Nicola Linus celebrated her 13th birthday on the day of her release by her abductor. It was in fact her 14th birthday, but we will come back to that at a later date. Her seven-year-old brother was forced to watch, tied to a bed. In October 2007, the Police Life magazine published an article about Mr. Cruel, which included information about the Lower Plenty attack that had never been released previously. Indeed, it is unclear whether the information included was mistaken, as I have not seen this information anywhere else. The article by Sarah Campbell included information based on an interview with Detective Senior Sergeant Chris O'Connor, who had worked on Operation Spectrum. In describing Mr. Cruel, the article stated, quote, 
One of his victims, an 11-year-old girl, was attacked as her 7-year-old brother was forced to watch, tied to a bed. This is the only source which describes this detail of this attack. It does not even appear in Keith Moore's extremely detailed summary of the attack in his 2016 article, Victoria Police and FBI Dossier on Shocking Child Abductions for the Herald Sun. Removed a pane of glass from the lounge room window. On the 14th of December 2010, Philippa O'Donnell published an article for the ABC website in which it was stated that the perpetrator in the Lower Plenty attack had, quote, removed a pane of glass from the lounge room window. This contradicted previous descriptions of the entry, in which it was claimed the man had, quote, smashed the window to enter the property. Keith Moore's Herald Sun article, Mr. Cruel suspected of at least a dozen attacks on children. On the 11th of April 2012, to mark the 20th anniversary of the discovery of Carmen Chan's remains, Keith Moore wrote an article for the Herald Sun titled Mr. Cruel Suspected of At Least a Dozen Attacks on Children. The article was quite a comprehensive description of the attacks on the victims of the four canonical attacks. Quote, the first victim police confirm was certainly attacked by Mr. Cruel was an 11-year-old girl he raped in 1987. He removed a window pane in the lounge room of her lower plenty home about 4 a.m. Wearing a mask and carrying a small handgun and a large hunting knife, Mr. Cruel woke the girl's parents and forced them to lie on their stomachs while he expertly tied their hands and feet using knots commonly tied by sailors and those familiar with securing loads. He then gagged them and put surgical tape over their eyes before locking them in their bedroom wardrobe. Their six-year-old son was blindfolded, gagged and tied to his bed. Mr. Krull then turned his attention to the real reason for the break-in, sexual gratification from the 11-year-old girl. He was in no hurry, spending about two hours in the house. So cool was he during the attack that he took a break from raping the girl to make himself a meal. He also searched the home and stole a box of classical records and a dark blue parka coat with a fake fur collar. The girl later told police he made a phone call from the house and threatened another family with physical violence. She said he warned the family to move their children or they would be in danger and that he had referred to the person he phoned as Bozo. A police check of telephone records revealed there was no such phone call. It was part of his modus operandi, setting up red herrings to distract police and make his capture less likely. This is the first time the telephone call has been described in this way, that the perpetrator did not actually make the call, but just pretended to. None of the newspaper reports from 1987 and 1988 mentioned this, and this detail is also left out of Keith Moore's next big article about the case for the Herald Sun in 2016. This is extremely confusing, and one might rightly ask why this is the case. Keith Moore's Victoria Police and FBI Dossier on Shocking Child Abductions Perhaps the most comprehensive piece of writing on the Mr. Cruel case was the article written by Keith Moore for the Herald Sun on the 8th of April 2016, Victoria Police and FBI Dossier on Shocking Child Abductions. It included a host of new information that had never been revealed previously. Eight years old. In regards to the Lower Plenty attack, it repeated the Philippa O'Donnell description of Mr. Cruel removing a window pane of the lounge room window to gain entry to the house. 
Moore gave the victim the pseudonym Jill and said she was, quote, 11 years old, before incredibly describing her brother as, quote, 8 years old. This boy has now been described in different sources as being 6, 7 and 8 years old respectively at the time of the attack. The parents were uncuffed and then restrained around the hands and ankles with nylon cord, which Mr. Krull expertly tied using knots commonly used by sailors and those familiar with using rope to secure loads. Moore stated that the perpetrator, quote, was armed with a handgun, kitchen knife, handcuffs and nylon cord. He went to the main bedroom first, forced the parents onto their stomachs and handcuffed their hands and ankles. Mr. Krull then went to the children's rooms, woke them up and took them to the parents' bedroom. He told them he was going to rob them. The parents were uncuffed and then restrained around the hands and ankles with nylon cord, which Mr. Krull expertly tied using knots commonly used by sailors and those familiar with using rope to secure loads. Jill's brother was tied to the bed and Jill's hands were tied with the cord. All the victims were then gagged with electrical tape and the children were blindfolded with surgical tape. Mr. Krull asked Jill her name, was told it, but later wrongly and repeatedly referred to her as Kate, not her real name. He also asked the father's clothes size, saying he was about the same size. He demanded cash and a first aid kit and said he needed some clothes, a shower, some food and wanted to shave. Mr. Krull then removed various items from the wardrobe and forced both parents inside it and put a bed blanket over them. He used the bedroom foam, but did not make a connection. Mr. Krull then went to other rooms in the house before returning to the main bedroom. He then made another call, this time connecting, and made threats into the phone. The word bozo was used. Mr. Krull then shut the wardrobe door and locked it. He left the room and returned soon after with a radio and turned it to 3KZ loudly to drown out the sounds of him assaulting Jill in the bathroom. He made Jill clean her teeth and bathe. Mr. Krull led Jill into the kitchen where he ate some cold lamb, biscuits, milk and orange juice. With his hunger satisfied, Mr. Krull then led Jill to the lounge room where he assaulted her again before dumping her in a lounge chair. He left the room for about 10 minutes during which he checked on the welfare of the parents and Jill's brother. Mr. Krull returned to the lounge and led the terrified Jill to a seat in the spare room. He left her there for a short time before returning and tying her ankles together with nylon cord. He told Jill he was leaving and that she could count to 100 before freeing herself and her family. Jill later told police she heard the front door close and she then released herself and then freed her parents and brother. It is possible Mr. Krull chose Jill as his victim after seeing her photograph in a local newspaper which carried an article about her and her family. Jill was attacked just a few days after the article was published. Moore then listed some quotes Mr. Krull had uttered during the attack. To the girl's parents he had said, quote, Be quiet and don't move or I'll hurt someone. And, quote, Get into the wardrobe and sit down. Get into the closet and kneel down. And quote. All I want is money, food and clothes. How much money is in the house? To the victim he had said, quote, What's your name? How old are you? And quote. Clean your teeth. And quote. I'm going out now, so count to 100 slowly, then you can free your parents. 
Moore then listed details of the description of the perpetrator as given by the victim's family. Quote, Australian, 178 centimetres to 183 centimetres tall, of slim to medium build with brown greyish white hair with white spots in it. Note how this differs to the 173 to 175 centimetre description that was given in the original 1987 press reports about the man. There was also no mention of greyish white hair in the original press reports where he was described as, quote, brown hair and slim build. He possibly had dandruff and his hair was protruding from beneath his balaclava. Greyish white bushy eyebrows, aged in his mid-twenties. Again, this is inconsistent with the original press reports where he was described as in his thirties. Had a gruff voice, deepish, nervous, uneducated. Suffered from bad breath, musty smell. Was unshaven with a couple of days growth. Oval face, soft hands, possibly right-handed, wearing blue denim jeans, good condition, close-fitting, a brown tweed sports jacket, possibly rust-coloured, a blue nylon waterproofed zip-up jacket, blue runners with white flashes down the side, white soles in good condition, and white cotton socks. His balaclava was navy blue with an open face and some type of material covering the eye area. His gloves were light in colour, possibly yellow, and were of the dishwashing or surgical type. Moore then gave a description of items that were stolen by the perpetrator during the attack. Quote, a tartan shirt, men's size, in red, black and yellow, $250 cash, a gold engagement ring of 18 carat yellow gold with a single white diamond. The diamond was on a gold mounting with four claws, and had the number 4132 stamped inside, and was worth $2,500 in 1987. A gent's dark blue cotton parker with a fake black fur collar. It was slightly padded with a distinctive zip in the left arm. The parker was made in Ecuador, and was branded Ecuadorian Shirt Company. A pair of men's trousers, 82cm to 85cm, possibly Roger David Brand light blue or grey with a small check and of straight leg design, a Gillette safety razor in a blue plastic box with a clear lid, a dark brown vinyl bag. Moore then gave a description of the weapons and equipment Mr. Cruel used in the attack. Quote, small black handgun, pistol type, knife, kitchen, black handle, silver blade, about 20 centimetres long, at least four sets of handcuffs, Nylon-coated cord, white and red or white. Electrical tape, adhesive. Roll of red, roll of green and roll of blue. Elastoplast. Material bag, dark bluish or grey or light grey colour, similar to school library bag. Without doubt, Keith Moore's 2016 article provided the public with more information about this attack than any other single document had done to date. It has clearly been the chief source that was relied on in the production of a number of notable podcast series about the case, like Case File and True Blue True Crime. However, some of the information in the article clearly contradicted information in Moore's 2012 article, Mr. Cruel suspected of at least a dozen attacks on children. Furthermore, cannot simply be explained by Moore correcting the record, as in his 2019 book, Mugshots 3, co-written with Jeff Wilkinson, 
his description of the Lower Plenty attack reverts back to the same one he had described in the 2012 Herald Sun article. For example, the boy is referred to as being 6 years old in his 2012 article, then 8 years old in his 2016 article, and then back to 6 years old in his 2019 book. Yes, the 2019 book is an update of a book that was originally published in 2003, but why does it contain the old description of the Lower Plenty attack? The 2012 article and the 2019 book also stated that the boy was tied to his own bed by the perpetrator, whereas in the 2016 article, Moore simply says the boy was, quote, tied to the bed. Since the description of the attack at this stage is occurring in the parent's bedroom, the reader can only presume that the boy was tied to the parent's bed. Why the incongruities? Each of his descriptions also differ in key respects to the contemporary press reports, and this raises the serious question of why this is the case. Moore did not reveal where he got his information, yet his 2016 account raises a number of questions I feel should be answered. Why does his account state that the perpetrator was in his 20s when the original press reports said that the man was in his 30s? Why does Moore's information state that the man was between 178 and 183 centimetres in height, when the first press report said that he was between 173 and 175 centimetres in height. Why does Moore's account say that the perpetrator, quote, connected when he made his second call from the telephone, yet his 2012 article and his 2019 book and Xanthi Mallet's account suggests this was a ruse and there was nobody on the other end? What was the actual age of the girl and her brother, and why do we have so many contradictory accounts of it, with the girl's age ranging from 11 to 12, and the boys ranging from 6 to 8? Why did Moore's account say that the parents were not blindfolded with surgical tape, only the children were, yet the original press reports in 1987 stated the parents were also? Indeed, why did the 2007 Police Life article state that the boy was, quote, forced to watch? as the perpetrator attacked the girl, yet this account has not been repeated anywhere else. Apart from a 2017 blog post by Carla McConnell, who claimed she was in the same grade 5 class as the victim. Why do some accounts neglect to mention that the girl was assaulted in the bathroom, while other accounts state she was only assaulted in the lounge room? And Chris O'Connor's account in Australian True Crime Stories seems to suggest the sexual assault only occurred in the bathroom. Was the lounge room window, quote, smashed, or did the perpetrator, quote, remove the window pane? There is so much contradictory information surrounding this case. I believe the Victoria Police should answer these questions once and for all, so as to prevent the spread of incorrect information about it, which could in turn harm the chances of a breakthrough in the case. Some misinformation about the exact location of the Lower Plenty attack. The address of the house where the Lower Plenty attack occurred has never been revealed. When the Herald Sun published a series of articles to mark the 25th anniversary of the abduction of Carmen Chan in April 2016, one of the articles included an interactive map made with a map-making tool named StoryMap. It showed the exact locations of houses from which the three abducted girls were taken. It also included a location for the Lower Plenty attack, but this was only ever intended to be an approximate location and the marker was placed on a random spot in Lower Plenty. 
This had the inadvertent effect of causing some internet users to mistakenly believe that the attack occurred on or off Para Road in Lower Plenty. In fact, the American blogger, who goes by the name Gian J. Quasar, who runs the blog Quester Site, claimed in July 2017 in his own series of blog posts on the Mr. Cruel Crimes that the Lower Plenty attack occurred in a house, quote, off Para Road. However, this is not correct. As a result of this misinformation, I have encountered a number of individuals who are interested in this case who falsely believe this is where the attack occurred. Furthermore, there are a number of other factual errors in this blog, which is essentially just a rehash of Keith Moore's 2016 Herald Sun articles, but the author editorializes for entertainment value throughout the series. This blog is not a credible source for information about this case. The fact of the matter is, we know the Lower Plenty attack occurred in the part of Lower Plenty near the border with Eltham, since some newspaper articles describe it as occurring in the, quote, Lower Plenty Eltham, or, quote, Eltham Lower Plenty region. I will not reveal the exact location, as this is not something police have ever released publicly. I have marked it on the map at a random location in the part of Lower Plenty near the border of Eltham. Cold Case Investigations by Xanthi Mallet, 2019 In August 2019, criminologist Xanthi Mallet published a book which included a chapter on the Mr. Cruel series. In describing the Lower Plenty attack, the assertion that the perpetrator in the Lower Plenty attack, quote, removed a window pane in the lounge. She wrote that he, quote, forced the parents at gunpoint to lie on their stomachs, and, quote, he also had a small knife. Remember, this differs to the original press reports of the period, which described the knife as, quote, large. She states that, quote, surgical tape was put over their eyes, which differs from Moore's account that it was only put over the eyes of the children. She refers to the age of the boy as, quote, six years old, and that he was, quote, tied to his bed. She refers to the girl as, quote, 11 years old. Mallet does not mention the attack on the girl that others said had occurred in the bathroom before she was told to, quote, clean her teeth. Rather, she states that the perpetrator, quote, assaulted her after he told her to clean her teeth. She states that the perpetrator, quote, cut the phone lines, which is different to the Ines Willicks 12th of May 1988 article, which states that, quote, he ripped the telephone from the wall. Mallet stated that the attacker, quote, pretended to make a phone call using the term bozo to the person on the other end, saying that the other person needed to move their children, otherwise they would be in danger, which is a direct copy of Bruce Tobin's 4th of September 1987 article from The Sun. In regards to the phone calls made from the house, Mallet stated, quote, later the police checked and no call had been made. She goes on, quote, the conclusion drawn was that this was an attempt to hide his true motives, as was the theft of the personal items, a ruse to distract and confuse the police. It is not clear what source Mallet has to make this claim, as it differs from the account of Keith Moore's 2016 Herald Sun article, in which he claims the perpetrator did in fact make a connection with his second telephone call. It also differs to the accounts of the attack in the newspaper articles that were published in 1987 and 1988. Later in the chapter, Mallet speculated on the likely location of Mr. Krull's residence, remarking on the relevance of the, quote, geographic spread of the attacks, and concludes that, 
quote, the first and fourth attacks, meaning the lower plenty attack and the Carmen Chan abduction, were so close together that it is likely the offender lived close to where these incidents happened. This is possibly information she took directly from the FBI profile report, which, as we saw earlier, was based on incorrect information provided by Victoria Police. Mallet then went on to describe her belief that the offender, quote, specifically targeted children in their prepubescent stage before they go through puberty and develop secondary sexual characteristics. I was interested to know whether Mr. Cruel was a paedophile in the true sense of the word. She then goes on to state that she knew criminal psychologist Tim Watson Munro had worked on the Mr. Cruel case, and so she asked him his opinion on whether Mr. Cruel was a paedophile. No, Mr. Cruel wasn't an exclusive paedophile, he replied. Mallet then goes on to explain in Watson Munro's words how he had been retained by Victoria Police to profile Mr. Cruel's offending, which exposed him to the, quote, full range of his actions. These included the rape and confinement of an elderly nun in a Melbourne northern suburb, with him brazenly taking her car and her ATM card in order to drive to a local bank and steal her savings. This is clearly referring to the Mooney Ponds attack on the night of the 10th to 11th of November 1987, except Tim Watson Monroe has referred to the woman as, quote, elderly, when the woman in question was reported at the time as being only 48 years old. Did you notice the other inconsistency? According to Mallet, Watson Monroe told her that the offender stole the woman's car and drove it to the bank. However, Ines Willix's article from the 12th of May 1988 clearly stated that the offender walked to the bank before stealing the woman's savings. Mallet also said that Watson Monroe told her the woman was a nun. Anthony Catalano's 4th of May 1991 article, which mentioned the Mooney Ponds attack, stated that the woman in question was a, quote, former nun. Catalano also claimed that the police had ruled out the attack as being the work of Mr. Cruel. The amount of contradictory information out there in this case is truly staggering. One clear mistake in Mallet's work is that the audio version of Mallet's book pronounces Carmen Chan's name incorrectly, pronouncing the name Carmine throughout. Additionally, Carmen's sister Carly is spelt incorrectly as K-A-R-L-I-E when it should be K-A-R-L-Y. Mysteriously, Mallet also quoted Watson Monroe as saying, quote, There were a number of other crimes involving the detention and rape of adult women, but then does not say which attacks these are, so it is unclear if what are being referred to here is the Warrandyte, Donvale, Bullying, and Greensboro attacks. Dancing with Demons, Tim Watson Monroe, 2017. I was only recently notified by a fellow researcher who takes an interest in this case that Tim Watson Monroe published his own book called Dancing with Demons in 2017. There is one sentence about the Mooney Ponds attack in that book, quote, Police asked me to profile this bloke, Mr. Cruel, long before he became famous. The police were concerned after a number of break-ins and rapes in the inner Melbourne suburbs. One involved the rape of an elderly nun. One can only speculate that Mr. Watson Munro has simply remembered this case incorrectly in referring to the victim as, quote, an elderly nun. She was certainly not reported as being elderly, as it was reported at the time of the crime that she was 48 years old, and this was stated in numerous contemporary sources. 
Whether the woman was a nun or a former nun, however, I do not feel like I can speculate on. Xanthi Mallet may have come across Tim Watson Munro's book in researching her own book and interviewed him about the case, and it being 30 years ago, perhaps Mr. Watson Munro has simply misremembered the details? Or did the police intentionally give the wrong age of the woman so that she could not easily be identified? The 2019 Channel 9 documentary, Australian Crime Stories, Mr. Cruel. In 2019, the Nine Network released a documentary about the Mr. Cruel series of crimes. It was written and directed by Adam Shand and showed some interesting archival news footage which could not be found previously on the internet and included interviews with retired detective Chris O'Connor and journalist Keith Moore. Looking at the facts presented about the Lower Plenty case, Shan gave the victim's age as 11. Chris O'Connor said the attacker, quote, went to the children's bedroom and there were two children in there. One was the victim and one was her sibling. The sibling was harnessed to the bed and the 11-year-old was taken out of the bedroom to the bathroom. At the completion of the sexual assault, he ate some food, had some drink. He stole a quantity of money and some jewellery and clothing from the family and he left via the front door. What is notable about this is that firstly, this account seems to suggest that the children slept in the same bedroom, whereas other accounts had previously stated the attacker went and got them from their, quote, rooms, plural. Also, it seems to indicate that the boy was tied to his bed in this bedroom, and not, as is suggested elsewhere, in the parents' master bedroom. It also indicates that the girl was sexually assaulted in the bathroom, but at no point does it mention she was assaulted in the lounge room, as is suggested in all other accounts. So, yet again, we have an account which seems to raise more questions than answers. During the account given by Chris O'Connor, a visual dramatization is shown of the attacker invading the home. Only, the man is shown wearing a full balaclava with no opening for the face, which is different to the actual one that was used in the attack. It seems the producers of the program erred here, as in the dramatization they play for the Sharon Wheels attack, the offender is depicted with an open-faced balaclava and wearing a brown tweed coat over a raincoat, which is what the attacker was wearing in the Lower Plenty attack. And they also show the police sketch of the intruder as he appeared in the Lower Plenty attack. This means they mixed up the appearance of the intruder from the two attacks. The program also repeats the mistake that Nicola Linus was abducted during school holidays, which we will delve into more in the future post about Nicola. What is interesting about this program is that it provides some original information about the 14-year-old female Hampton attack victim from 1985. Interview with retired detective Valentine Simpson. In February 2021, I visited retired detective Valentine Simpson and his wife Mary at their home to interview Val about his involvement in the task force that was set up to investigate the Lower Plenty attack. Now 80 years old and 95% blind, Mr. Simpson had in recent years suffered a stroke that had also slightly affected his speech. What was immediately clear, however, was that his mind was sound and he still had a strong attachment to this case. Quote, I didn't catch the bugger and that's the worst part of it, he told me. Val and his wife Mary were kind, welcoming people, and Val was happy to discuss his experience of the case, as long as it did not involve a discussion of any of the confidential details of it, such as the identity of the family concern, the address of where it occurred, or any of the confidential crime scene information. 
I started off by reading Val the 4th of September 1987 Sun article by Bruce Tobin, which mentions the phone calls that the offender was said to have made to remind him of the case. He told me that he decided to release the information about the threatening phone call that was made by the offender because he had used the word bozo, and because this was such an unusual word, there was a good chance it might, quote, jog someone's memory who knew someone who used that word. Val also told me that he always felt that whoever the offender was, it was someone who was very analytical, and someone with a great deal of forensic knowledge, because he did not leave a trace of evidence. Val described it as, quote, the perfect, unperfect crime scene, and that he had not seen anything like it in all his years of police work. Val told me that there were a few things he could not tell me about the crime scene, which had not been released to the public. I then asked him whether this had ever led him to suspect that the perpetrator might have been someone involved with the police, and he replied, Of course, police, medical, forensics, we went through all those things. When I suggested the perpetrator might have been someone who had been in prison before, and so was determined to cover up their tracks to avoid a return to jail, Val replied, Maybe, but I think it was someone who had a greater knowledge than that, but that's just my opinion. He repeated that it was highly unusual for an offender not to leave a trace in all his years of investigating. I referred to the point that was made in the 12th of May 1988 in S. Willock's article, which stated that the rope used in the Mooney Ponds attack was not a rope that was found in Australia, and Val said, quote, No, I went to all the rope factories, and they all said it's not made in Australia, it's from overseas. Even 34 years after the attack, one of the things that struck me about Val was that he still had a deep concern about the victims of crime, and particularly this one. Mary said Val would regularly stay up to 3am, working on the case, and then get up at 5am. Val said, quote, When you've met the parents and girl, you become attached to them, sort of. When you investigate, you put everything into your victim. When you don't catch the bloke, you feel like you've failed your victim. Val described to me how when he was on the task force, he worked about 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, reading up on every Australian rape case he could in an attempt to make a link. Val said at the time he had decided that this attacker was, quote, a serial rapist, as he was confident the Lower Plenty attack had such strong similarities to the Donvale rape of 1985 and one other that he could not remember, but he could not remember making any links to the 1987 Greensboro attempted rapes. Interestingly, when I brought up the Mooney Ponds attack of the 48-year-old, quote, nun, or former nun, Val said he, quote, thought they had caught the bloke for that. This was news to me, so I questioned Val as to whether he was sure, and he said, quote, I think he was caught, I may be wrong on that. Val said he was definitely called to the crime scene for the Mooney Ponds attack, but he was not sure if it was linked to the Lower Plenty attack. I informed Val of Xanthi Mallet's 2019 book and how she had stated that Mr. Krull was responsible for the Mooney Ponds attack as recently as 2019. When I informed Val of the discrepancy between Ines Willicks's article of the 12th of May 1988 and Xanthi Mallet's book of 2019 in that the former claimed the perpetrator walked to the bank, and the latter stated he used the woman's car. Val said he couldn't remember which the offender had done, but felt like it might have been the latter. Val did mention, however, how, like in the Lower Plenty attack, he could not find the maker of the rope that was used in the Mooney Ponds crime. In fact, he said he could not find the maker of the rope that was used in any of these crimes. 
I asked Val if he had any involvement in the investigations of the Warrandite and Bullion attacks, and he replied, quote, I examined them very closely, because when we were doing our initial investigations into all the rapes, I examined the reports of those crimes very closely. Val's wife Mary at this point said, quote, When you get to Carmen Chan, Val has a theory about that. I said that I'd love to hear it, and Val stated confidently, quote, In my opinion, Carmen Chan was not Mr. Cruel. When I asked why he thought that, Val responded, quote, For one, it's a completely different MO. For starters, the spray painting on the car, a completely different MO. He, meaning the lower plenty attacker, left nothing. Everything was just too different from his normal process. Mary also pointed out that retired police wear their hearts on their sleeves, and in any case where the crime goes unsolved, they beat themselves up about it. She recalled that when Carmen Chan was found to have been murdered in 1992, Val had told a colleague how guilty he felt because he had failed to catch Mr. Cruel, since they had said the offender was responsible for Carmen Chan's death. Val had said, quote, I didn't catch him, and now look at what's happened. Val's colleague replied, quote, The operative word, Val, is we. We didn't catch him. But later, Mary said Val had decided, quote, It's not him, because he said, quote, To me, the MO was completely different. Getting back to the topic of the identity of Mr. Cruel, Val said that, quote, It was probably someone who had a very good knowledge of forensic investigation. On the question of whether Mr. Cruel was still alive, Val said he wasn't sure. Quote, If he's still alive, why has he gone so quiet? He asked. It struck me that Val still took his responsibility very seriously. He remained very professional throughout the interview and did not disclose any confidential information about his crime. There are a number of contradictions in the reporting of facts about the Lower Plenty attack. Therefore, it is important to consider all sources before overly relying on any one source. The list of these contradictions, as have been established. 1. Girls' victims' age, variously 11 or 12 years old. 2. Brothers' age, variously 6, 7 or 8 years old. 3. The location and circumstances of the sexual assault on the girl, variously. Brother was harnessed to bed in bedroom she shared with her brother. The brother was tied to the parents' bed in the master bedroom. The girl was sexually assaulted in the bathroom, or in the bathroom and the lounge room, or only in the lounge room. The boy was forced to watch the sexual assault. Unclear how latter could occur if boy was blindfolded with surgical tape. 4. Circumstances surrounding the blindfolding of the victims. Variously, the parents and children were blindfolded with surgical tape. Only the children were blindfolded with surgical tape. 5. The circumstances of the entry into the home. Variously, the window was smashed, smashed with a brick, or the window pane was removed. 6. The circumstances of the phone calls that were made. Variously, a number of phone calls were made. A connection was made on the second call, and the perpetrator threatened someone who answered on the other end. Two calls were made, both of which were the attacker just pretending he was speaking to someone. 7. The circumstances surrounding the cutting of the phone line. Variously, no mention of it. The perpetrator pulled the phone from the wall. The perpetrator cut the line. 8. The knife used in the attack. Variously described as large or small. 9. The physical characteristics of the intruder. 
variously 173 to 175 centimetres tall, about 175 centimetres tall, 178 to 183 centimetres tall. 10. The age of the offender, variously in his 20s or in his 30s. 11. Whether the Mooney Ponds attack is linked to the Lower Plenty attack at all. 12. The age and information of the Mooney Ponds victim, variously a 48-year-old woman, a 48-year-old former nun, an elderly nun. 13. Circumstances of the attack on the Mooney Ponds victim. Variously, the intruder walked to the bank to steal the woman's money, or the intruder drove the woman's car to the bank. I call on detectives who have worked on this case to set the record straight about the above contradictions in order to prevent misinformation about the case circulating in society. Don't forget to follow Melbourne Marvels on iTunes or your preferred podcast player. You can follow my blog on this case at melbournemarvels.com. That's M-E-L-B-I-N-M-A-R-V-E-L-S dot com. If you'd like to support the show and the research I do, I'd greatly appreciate it if you donated the price of a cup of coffee to help cover the many expenses I have incurred in conducting my research. You can find my Patreon page in the description to do this. There you can also find the Melbourne Marvels page on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at at M-E-L-B-I-N Marvels, on Instagram at M-E-L-B-I-N Marvels and on Facebook as Melbourne spelt like the city Marvels. Please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000 if you feel you can help solve this case. Or if you have any information about this case you'd like to discuss, please contact me by email on melbourne, M-E-L-B-I-N, marvels at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Till next time, take care everybody. Mm-hmm.